As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive & June. Olive & June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive & June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game-changer. The best thing about Olive & June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. The producers of this podcast recognise the traditional owners of the land on which it's recorded. They pay respect to the Aboriginal elders past, present and those emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children. And if you've lived a good few years under the type of pressure and stress of having someone stalking you, it creates a lot of issues in every part of your life. I, these days, have to take four different types of medication. I've got all those triggers from day-to-day life, 
and that's from opening doors to I scold myself if I walk out of a door and I don't look each way. I can't handle if someone's a few metres behind me, I've got to ID them and then I've got to move. Things like that won't go away and I look at it and I think if you allow him back out on the streets again, it could cost me my life or somebody else and I think that that's a big risk to take to the community. In episode 216 of Australian True Crime, we heard from Dr Danny Sullivan, who's the Executive Director of Clinical Services at Thomas Embling Hospital in Melbourne. Thomas Embling is a secure psychiatric facility. It's nestled in a leafy bend of the Yarra River, on the same spot where the Yarra Bend Lunatic Asylum was established in 1848, when the area was still part of the colony of New South Wales. This is Australian True Crime, recorded at the Hub Australia. There are only two ways to be admitted to Thomas Embling, either under the Mental Health Act or under the Crimes, Mental Impairment and Unfitness to be Tried Act. Under the Mental Health Act, a person with a severe mental illness who poses a threat to themselves or to others can be admitted for psychiatric treatment compulsorily. At Thomas Embling, you'll find only the most challenging of people in that category, including those already in prison who develop severe mental illness or whose existing conditions escalate in that environment. But it's the people admitted under the Crimes, Mental Impairment and Unfitness to be Tried Act, also known as the Forensic Patients, for whom Thomas Embling receives most attention. These are the people who've been sent to the hospital by the court because it's decided they were either mentally impaired at the time they committed an offence, or that they have a mental impairment that means they can't stand trial for an offence. The offences in question are generally violent. Offenders aren't sentenced to set periods of incarceration under the Mental Health Act. They receive treatment under custodial supervision orders. Ideally, with the benefit of treatment and medication, their conditions improve and they can apply for leave from the hospital. Some patients have jobs outside and return every night. And if and when staff are satisfied of a patient's recovery, they can be released back into the community. There have obviously been many, many patients who have re-entered the community successfully and we've never heard about them again. Unfortunately though, there have been some notable exceptions. In 2006, the then Federal Health Minister Tony Abbott visited Thomas Embling and was punched in the face by a patient as he toured the acute care unit. The Sydney Morning Herald reported that the minister laughed off the attack, chuckling to journalists that some people probably thought his attacker had had a sane moment when he swung a punch at him. His attacker that day was a man by the name of Sean Christian Price, who was sent to Thomas Embling after a string of violent rapes. Nine years after punching Tony Abbott, Price murdered teenager Marsha Vukatic in a completely random attack. Ross Conodaris was suffering a psychotic break when he shot his grandparents in 2012 and then set their house on fire. The court found that his psychosis was induced by drug use, but that he had an underlying diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia and he was placed at the Thomas Embling Hospital as a forensic patient. In 2019, while on day release, Conodaris armed himself with a meat cleaver and scissors before attempting several home invasions. He later pleaded guilty to aggravated burglary, attempted armed robbery and assault. With all of that said, Dr Sullivan definitely presents a compelling case in favour of the Thomas Embling Hospital and for the system it represents. We've reissued episode 216 so you can hear it again for yourself. But today, we hear from David Camerata, 
David's former best friend, the best man at his wedding, is a man by the name of Jonathan Dick. Jonathan is now a forensic patient at the Thomas Embling Hospital, and David presents what I think is a pretty compelling case too. We are, um, well, fortunately and unfortunately having to relocate. Our circumstances, obviously, we don't have a clear pattern or a clear direction for the future. So because of safety concerns, obviously got to try and mitigate them as much as possible. So we've got to do everything, you know, like change home, change the lot. So selling the, the family house was a little bit, bit hard as well because we spent like 10 years renovating that place. And um, after something like that happens at your house, it's very difficult after that to walk out your front door and not think about the past. So Jonathan Dick is a man who was in the, a shopping centre, mm-hmm. Doncaster shopping centre, uh, waiting with a, sh- a samurai sword and a knife for his brother David and um, by the lifts. I think they've actually to memory when we were in the Supreme Court, the the DPP put in a submission so those tapes or DVDs or whatever couldn't be viewed again because what happened to David was terrible. I mean, I knew him quite well and to die like that is horrible, really, really horrible, and he wouldn't have known what was what was coming. I mean, I got a description of what was on those, those things and I spoke to some of the police. One of the police officers who was trying to sort of, when they were looking for him, he had to watch the tape and he refused to watch it twice when he was trying to show his team what had happened because he said it was too horrendous. So so the, the attack lasted 66 seconds apparently. I mean, it, just a frenzied yeah. attack. And in the lead up to that attack, were you aware that he was dangerous? Did you feel as though he was dangerous before that happened? The problem with him and the, the, the thing that's caused me the most issues over the years is the fact that Face-to-face and front-on, he's he's not dangerous at all. Behind, like with the stalking behaviour and not knowing where he's coming from, that is is the most scary part. So that's where I felt and, and find him to be extremely dangerous. He did come to my house years, about five years prior to the first attack with a knife, but he I kind of talked him, talked him down, I suppose you could say, and he gave me the knife and then he submitted and all the rest of it. So it wasn't much of an issue, but I was concerned from that visit. I just was never comfortable with the fact that you're coming at my house at middle of the night with a knife. You know, it's, it's a little bit scary. But, I mean, I called the, the mental health services and they sort of said to me, oh, maybe he's not taking his medication any longer. So, and I had no idea. I hadn't seen him for years. Actually, it was probably about two years since I'd seen him. So I'd heard through friends of friends that, potentially had some issues but again through my own investigation so to speak with speaking to some people I said look I'm going to get in contact with him and see if he's okay and sort of try and you know come back into his life somewhat but I was advised strongly do not contact him um, because you don't know where he's at or you can't you can't help him I mean I'm not a doctor obviously no but and also he's obviously had changed so much his mental illness had had changed him him. so much I mean his mum and his family had no idea whatsoever they were on the news that night uh, appealing 
his mum and his brothers, they were on the news appealing yep. for any information for anyone to come forward and, in fact, his mum apologised for Jonathan not being there. Correct, yeah. She I said, um, you know, we all, his brothers and his other brother, Jonathan, who couldn't be here tonight, blah, blah, blah. Yes. So and then she said later that when a detective came to her and said, look, we think it could have been Jonathan, she was absolutely shocked. Can you tell us about who he was when you were best mates? Well, I don't know. We just sort of grew up in kind of in the country and we didn't have a lot to do. So, you know, there was, it was, it was a decent guy. I mean, he was always quite jovial and, but he had a serious side to him. And I mean, he was quite intelligent as well, like very intelligent. Um, and he, he was a heavy cannabis user. So I think that might have, you know, played a part somewhere along the lines. I kind of went in a slightly different direction in the sense that I didn't get into any sort of um, party drugs or anything like that. You know, there was a sort of a little bit of a separation there along the ways. And then I sort of went with, you know, my wife and sort of started a life and he continued sort of on that. But he was a decent guy. I mean, got into the footy and uh, liked to read comic books and stuff like that. So we never had we never really had any issues to play basketball, just, just general, normal. Suburban Fairly kids. normal, yeah. He was actually working at my house and I was picking him up and dropping him off because he didn't have a licence. And I was living at the time at that house in Kilo and he was living in Ringwood. So basically I'd pick him up in the morning and drive him. So I was doing quite some distance. I was spending a lot of time with him in the car. And I was noticing just saying just the odd thing here and there that just didn't wasn't like him exactly. So and they were just a bit darker in tone and um, he wasn't as jovial and he was just not quite right. And I, I actually thought during the time he was working that it was the job that was causing him issues. So I was concerned like I'd call him to see if he was too hot in the house to see if he needed anything and he would sort of hang up and then I'd sort of try and make sure that he was comfortable and as the job progressed, he got worse and I said, look, listen, just don't do the job anymore. Like, forget it. I'll pay you for the whole job and then I'll get someone because I thought that was making him upset. How old was he at this stage? Yeah, about 30-ish mm-hmm. roughly. But, yeah, so the, and then the last thing that, that caused the fight was actually how it was publicised a bit different. I got into a little bit of an argument over a pizza, just the size of the pizza. He was really specific about it, which is silly. But then I asked him to wait before I had to drive him home, which is quite a distance. I had a truck coming with some furniture and I said, can we wait another half an hour? And then that's where he started to carry on and I had enough's enough and raised my voice. He raised his, there was a bit of swearing going on. So I paid him for the job and I said, "Don't please don't come back. I begged him the night before not to come back to do the job. But he refused and said, if I don't pick him up, he'll make his way there and finish the job. So that was that. I actually paid him a lot more money than what he asked for because I, I felt that, you know, it was the right thing to do. He actually took the money that he asked for and then left the other money and he actually hid it underneath. So it wasn't anything to do with money. He wasn't upset about the money. It was something going on inside him. But, again, I have no idea. I mean, I'm just trying to live life as well, right? The, the contact had ceased, right? So then it first started off with a few friends of mine ringing me saying, oh, he's said X, Y, Z to them and asking them whether or not, you know, just different things that had never happened. And I knew that there was something going on, but again, I was sort of strongly advised not to have any contact with him. So that's that's what I did. 
apparently he'd had some vision of myself and his brother bashing him until his brain fell out and then all these angels came put uh, something along those lines you know it's pretty full-on but obviously that didn't happen i mean and we didn't go to school together either uh his brother went to school and across town so do you remember when you heard that that david had been murdered they mentioned his name on the radio so i ran to the computer and i saw that vision and within a couple of literally within a split second i was like well that's They've got it wrong. It's his brother who's died. I thought it was Jono that had died. Of course, because it's so clear, it really. It was so if you, clear. If like, you know the guy, it's yeah. very clear that it's him standing there yeah. in his tracky dacks. Not even like a question mark. Like, no. It's just bang, that's him. So I, I was like started to get a bit stressed out thinking, oh, my God, someone's killed him. I don't know what he's you know up to these days, but, you know, it's sad, sad regardless. And then I sort of got down a bit further and I was like put two and two together going, okay, shit, he's killing people now so that day i had to walk to my car and you know in a car park where you know his brother just got murdered and i mean i was just worried that someone was going to jump out and try and kill me or he was going to try and kill me so you hadn't seen this bloke in 10 years yeah about by that, that stage about seven to ten years yeah and it did enter your mind that day well once i saw who i mean he killed his brother the thing for me was that them two were as not as close as me and him, but we had a that kind of like that relationship, right? He was the best man at my wedding, yeah. So I put a lot of effort into a relationship with him. I still, you know, maintained some kind of relationship and trying to try to check in on him and see if he was okay. So yeah, it was just a, it was a shock. So I thought if he could kill him, he could quite easily kill me. That's what I was thinking. That afternoon, I actually went to the, as soon as I found out, I went to the police station. I rang them, went down there, and I absolutely love the Victorian police, love them. The guy who I got the first time I went down there, I didn't like him at all, and we had an, a real horrible experience. I, I had a horrible experience rather talking to him, and he showed me a picture of um, Jono with a hood on, and it was sort of like, you know, like a, almost like a comic book picture, really, with someone about to swing something. So... I was already a little bit all over the shop that day. I don't know if that's how they ID'd him. I think there could have been someone just calling, literally like everyone knew it was him. So they've obviously ID'd him. And then for me personally, the whole thing started off with sleeping away from home that night because I was a little bit paranoid. And then slowly, slowly, I just you just drift back into normal life. Yeah. After a few days, you sort of went back home and I sort of thought, well, there's no real reason why you would want to kill me. Like, we, we, uh, yeah, we got into a minor argument, but there'd be no reason for it. Like, it's not like we were involved in anything that would result in such a crime, you know? No, no, no. absolutely not. And and I guess between brothers, you just never know. You think something huge must have happened between the two of them because we're, we're thinking through our own lenses, not through yeah. Jonathan's lens. Correct. He'd mentioned bizarre things like they weren't like at the time, you know, I think back and I'm like, oh, they were just off the cuff comments, you know, like people say things like, oh, you know, I killed whatever. But he did mention um, slitting his brother's throat to me when he was working at the house. And I put it down to like, all right, he's just, you know, in a cranky mood. And although that might sound to the public like, oh, that's red flag no but people we say we you say know these yeah things. but it was quite specific and at yeah. the time i did think to myself oh shit that was a bit harsh yeah like you know 
to say that, mm. but on the same token, it, it didn't surprise me coming out of his mouth. But he wasn't a violent person either at the time. But he was missing. He was on the run. Yeah. Police were looking for him. Correct. It's all and, over the media. Yeah. And, I mean, I got a call late one night and because at the time we had little babies, right, so musical beds, yeah. you know, happens quite a bit, right? Yeah. So I was asleep upstairs and I got a phone call in the middle of the night and I've actually never been able to figure out who it was from but it was like two days after the whole murder thing and I've never been able to even try and trace that call to figure out and I don't know whether or not it was him calling me because he had my number obviously trying to see if he I don't, I don't even know but that was a, a everything started to get just odd after that like um thinking whether or not you could be next or so you start living a different sort of life I read the story a hundred times but seeing that yeah there's vision of it we can clearly see you walking down your front steps but there's another man waiting in your front yard you can't see him as you're walking out your front door. Oh, it, it just made my stomach turn. It made me want to cry, actually, to be honest. I just yeah. had the weirdest reaction to it's the way you skip down the first few stairs. Yeah. You're so carefree. Yeah. You know, it's you're a bloke normal, in the morning yeah. skipping down Off those to top, work. Yeah, top few stairs yeah. of your beautiful house. But I can see someone's laying in wait yeah. for you. Someone's standing right there to ambush you. It's horrible. Yeah, it is. And, and that actually has caused the biggest issues to me now and the family as well with the fact that I've got so, like I've tried to stop this subject matter in a sense of it taking hold of your life. Mm. Problem is, is I've got so many triggers of from being attacked from behind, you know, oh, I mean, there's so many things. I don't like people walking behind me. I don't like, um, we're at a friend's house and the doorbell rang and these friends of ours got up and went and opened the front door and me and my wife were horrified. We're like, how are you going to open the front door to somebody like that? Like just so carefree and not from, a, you know, arm's distance or with, with a knife in your hand or something mm, like that. Like it's, it's bizarre. Well, so, well, get us to that point though because this first mm, attack was with a hammer. Yeah, so he crept, creeped out underneath and from the stairs and then bang. I th actually thought something had fallen off the roof and hit me in the head. I bet. Um, and then he just keep, keeps coming for you down the driveway. Yeah. You managed to fight him off that time and then what, he, he just ran? Yeah, he ran and I um, there was a car and I thought, oh, awesome, like, you know, because at the time I, I mean, it hit me pretty hard, right, and the I was bleeding a lot but I was also a bit dazed as well. Yeah. So I thought I'll grab the car and then we can just, you know, follow him from behind, figure out where he goes and then, you know, can get it sorted out that way. But. He, the car swerved around me and, you know, must have thought, you know, it was this crazy guy in the middle of the street, right? Yeah, so, yeah. So he went bleeding, and I, by the yeah, way. Yeah, bleeding so everywhere scary. and I was a bit, probably a bit amped up as well. And then I ran over and grabbed the, the hammer that he dropped and I thought I'll chase him down. But at the time uh, my neighbours had come out and I, I, I actually stopped running, I think, and um, there was a lot of screaming. It was a pretty cra chaotic scene, the kids in that there. And, yeah. Um, so after that, I, I actually went in the house and my kids were crying and, and which was horrible. And I, I distinctly remember my middle child saying, you know, you're okay. And I had a cloth on the back of my head, but I took it. I thought it was a little scratch, right? Cause I wasn't thinking straight. So I took that off. And I mean, you could see right into my neck and it was like, you know, the a huge piece of skin that was flapped open. You could see it was, it was, it was brutal blood everywhere and they all started 
not screaming, but, you know, getting worse. So um, after that, ambulance came, police came, they sticky taped my head and I left, which I, I wish now I didn't because at the time I think the police may have been thinking that we had been, he'd been staying with us or something because they were in the house all day with my wife and she gave like six different statements and it was a huge day and I'd gone off to hospital. So I actually had to have surgery, but I left them there and I probably should have stayed behind, right? But at the time I was thinking, you know, the, the ambulance was saying you've got to get you to the hospital. It wasn't like a, a rush you off before you die situation, but still, you know, during the drive you're still sort of thinking, well, you know, the police are just going to go and pick him up, right, just down the street and everything will go back to normal and, you know, I won't have to think about this anymore. But it didn't turn out that way, right? So, no, not for a really long time. A really long time. He... Well, he sort of obviously he disappeared, right? So then we we end up. The worst part about this was the year that we we went into after that was a year of of. I pretty much knew full well that he was if he'd waited that long, he's going to come back again, right? So mm. we knew we couldn't stay in our house, so we we packed up all three kids, some of our belongings, not even all of them, and then we went to live with somebody. So we lived with somebody for a week. I was back at work, which is even more ridiculous. I was back at work four days after the attack, stitches in my head still. Then we were living with a friend of ours and then we couldn't stay there forever. It was really kind of them to give give us, you know, their space. Then we moved in with my sister-in-law. Uh, they've got two kids. So you can imagine there's already five kids in a house, plus they've got a life to live as well. So we lived there for three months and then we moved again. So that's you know, move number three with three kids, uh, which is hard enough as it is. At the same time, jumping at shadows. Yeah, as well as like trying to get, you know, and I was hell-bent on not getting caught out again. Yeah. And that causes uh, problems down the track as well. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's I mean, your I, adrenaline yeah. must have been at, uh, at redlining yeah, it was crazy. 24 All hours day. a day. All day, every day. And I'm not even embarrassed to say I've I've jumped at my own shadow. Mm. I've been swooped by birds and just about had a heart attack. You name it, I've done it. But on the same token, all that stuff kept me alive, right? So yeah. I can't complain. Um, you got to live with the consequences afterwards. But if I didn't, there's potential, I, you know, I might not be here still. So, yeah, we move again. Um, and a whole lot of things, you know, happened during that period, like, we move into a place, and this is not in a bad area, but we're renting. I'm paying a mortgage as well. So you've got financial things you're dealing with. You've got secure, massive security concerns. We've got the kids that are all uprooted from their normal lives. My wife's doing double the amount of driving that she normally would, plus trying to deal with what's going on. You know, things that people don't see <laughs> crazily. Like I was on my way home one day about to pull into the driveway of this rental property. And this is, a, like I say, it's not a bad area that we're, that we're in. And there was a guy hiding around a corner, sort of peeking, peeking around a corner at, at somebody's front door, right next door to where we were living. And I went inside, I said, this is what's going on next door. And my wife's like, oh, and I said, listen, I can't live with myself if someone walks out that door. And so I went across and then it turns out the guy was living in the house, but he had some major mental health issues. He, and then he, tried to befriend me and I was already a little bit on the sketchy side of being around people, you know, unfortunately. I, I know it's part of the community but I was struggling a bit and then 
one night in the middle of summer we were there and um, I hear a, a girl yelling out rape like at the top, like blood-curdling screaming. So I run out out and go to jump the fence and I realise the police are there and this girl also has some, some major mental health issues. So we had it on both sides. We just couldn't catch a break. They ended up selling that property so we had to move again. So we moved back onto the other side of town and um, we're living in hiding there and... Yeah, it just kept going and going until the day we captured him and then could sort of go back to normal after Unbelievable. that. Unbelievable. And you're right, it, your hypervigilance yeah. paid off that day. It I, did. I mean, I'll never yeah. forget hearing that story yeah. that day, yeah. just going, no, that can't be. I, I just couldn't understand it as I was hearing it. Yeah. And, and, then I'm, and then I had to read it over and over again going, hang on, that's the same guy. Yeah. That's the. Tell us how it unfolded from your perspective. Well, one of the craziest things was that I was so worked up with everything. I didn't realize it at the time, but now I look back, I was so, when I say it's like on point to what was going on around me, he'd been stalking me, I think, for nine days or something previous to us capturing him. But you had I, no idea. I had no idea. You no. literally had not seen or heard from him in no. a year. No, yeah, exactly. Since that day in your driveway, nobody had. That's right. He was no. the most wanted guy in Australia, I think, at the time, like, there were, you know, literally posters, it was yeah. everywhere. Victoria yeah, Police right. trying everything to find this guy, could not find him. That's right. And we'd, I'd been that, he'd been stalking me and I hadn't seen him. I hadn't actually caught a glimpse of him, but I was aware of what was going on around me. So he'd been pretty good like that, but in his not being seen. But my brother-in-law saw him in the car park where, where we were parking and he rang me and said, I think I saw him. And I said, oh. I said, listen, I'll go down and have a look myself. And the police, I thought, because I'd heard the police as soon as they heard his name would sort of go there. And that time when he, after he'd called the police, the police said, we'll look into it. But when I got there, it was only like half an hour after he called me, A, I couldn't see anybody and B, there was no police. So I was like, oh. And at the time I'd actually taken up smoking and I'd, I hadn't smoked for many years, but I was reaching for anything yeah. just to keep me going. So I was standing in the alleyway and I was smoking a cigarette and, Anyway, I sort of thought, ah, oh, it couldn't be, you know, so I went back to work. And then my brother-in-law happened to be over for dinner two nights later and we were talking about it and I said, oh, you know, and he's, he was a bit upset that the police hadn't called him back and blah, blah, blah. And I said, oh, look, maybe it's nothing. They've already checked it out on the CCTV. And then the very Monday I pulled into work and I caught a glimpse of him. But when I say I caught a glimpse of him, it was so slight and from such a distance away that I look back on it now and like I was so ready for what was going on. So I'd driven in and luckily, thank God, I got a car park right on the ground level and he was on Flinders Street just near Hosier Lane just peeking out like someone sort of peeking around a corner. And I saw a hat pulled down and it looked like a disguise, right? And he was looking at you. Yeah, he was, watching. He, just, so, he was watching me. So by that stage he knew roughly what time you arrived at work. Yeah, that's you, right, where I leave. Where you park, Yeah, you know, which which parking garage kind of thing you like to use. Yeah. So he was just waiting there for you. Just waiting. And, I mean, he's smart enough obviously to know that I've been working at the same place for 25 years, so I'm mm. going to be at that place. So he had all the mental capacity to know where I'd be, what roughly what times I'd get there. So all this pre-planning and all this pre-meditation and all these things. And then when I caught a glimpse of him, I thought, all right, this, this 
this is fine. When I say fine, I say, okay, well, this can be sorted now because I know where he is. Sounds silly, but when you're hiding from a monster, is scary. When you see a monster, it's, well, it's to me, it's not scary. It's just like a problem. You got to solve it, right? So, can I ask, were you carrying a weapon? Yeah, I was at the time. I was carrying a knife, and I also had a taser in my car, and I had that knife with me almost religiously, almost everywhere I went. I'd be out on a jog, and I'd have a knife with me um, everywhere I went. I had one, but. I actually don't know. I, I think I threw it, but I don't know if I did or not. I may have dropped it because I was so, it sounds silly, but so excited to like, all right, well, this is my chance. And, uh, yeah, that's that's where it was found by the police. And they asked me about it. I said, yeah, it's mine. Like I'm, I'm not embarrassed or at all concerned no. at the fact that I was armed. If I, my kids actually saw the knife, and, I mean, it was with me all the time, and we'd be out on walks, and I'd have it. it Although it was a knife, it didn't look like I was carrying a knife, right? So it was folded up and the kids would ask me what it was and that. And I'd say, oh, it's something to do to work tool. And, you know, you give them a bit of a story and mm. and that was that. But there was no way I was getting caught out again without no. um, something with me. Because God knows he would have something with him. If well, he, he did even the last time that they, yeah. well, when we caught him, he had a bucket filled with uh, a big, another big ugly kitchen knife. And some, uh, I think there were some other things in there, hacks, uh, who knows, rubber gloves. Or, you know, like I say, he was, he was very intelligent in a sense that he can, he was planning things out really well. So if 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 I hadn't saw him, he could have crept up on me and, you know, done the same thing he did to his brother. Well, we can only assume that was the plan, right? Well, I, yeah, 100%, that was it. I chased him up Hosea Lane. I actually had uh, my colleague with me, Dion, who... Um, He's much bigger, much stronger than what I am, thank God. And um, he was with me and I, I took off. Like I didn't wait for him and I was well in front of him. But when I saw him, I sort of was a bit like I, I wasn't sure. I didn't want to just go and grab some, you know, some guy and, yeah. you know, start punching and kicking him because, uh, you know, get in big trouble for doing that. <laughs> so I, I ID'd him a little bit and then he took off and I slipped over and then he ended up running. We actually caught up with him exactly in the same spot where he was spying on me and then as soon as we um we caught up with him he sort of uh, we subdued him Dion is a jiu-jitsu guy right so as soon as he got him down he sort of wrapped him up like a pretzel and then he wasn't going anywhere I feel bad that Dion got a major injury to his hand and he had to have extensive surgery on his hand his mum had come out and said that she was upset at the fact that he'd, you know, he'd been um, bashed and, you know, he had some some stitches and broken ribs and I'm like, I'm not apologetic for that at all. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. In September 2020, after hearing evidence from two forensic psychiatrists that Jonathan Dick had been diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia, Justice Lex Lazary accepted that he was suffering the effects of a severe mental illness when he killed his brother and attacked David Camerata. He found Jonathan not guilty of murder, attempted murder and stalking by way of mental impairment and ruled that he be admitted as a forensic patient to the Thomas Embling Hospital. Unfortunately, as is often the case, there were no available beds. So Jonathan actually spent years in a psychiatric ward in prison. It does seem difficult to understand at what point a person can be deemed normal if they are killing lots of people. Well, if correct. If they're serial killing or... Yeah, exactly. And I mean, I understand that there's like a, probably a grey area between the, the two people, but on the same token, you look at it and you think, well, I did say to the DPP, which are a whole nother story, you know, you could do three podcasts just on them and 
how how you get treated with them. But I actually said to one of them, "Well, what if what if he had gone on and killed five, six, seven people?" And she said to me that we'd look at it as exactly the same because medically the two doctors from both sides agreed, and that's it. So you look at it and go, "Well, if that's the case, then a guy like Paul Denya, technically, if they had have ruled that, then you'd." you would have taken him, he would have gone into the mental health system, you would be then medicating him and then potentially and almost 100% putting him back out on the streets. Well, I mean, I don't know about that. They, they will say, and we've spoken to to people from this particular facility here in Melbourne, the uh, yeah. Thomas Embling Hospital, they will say that, look, you know, and, and other advocates will say that there's potential for you to stay in there a lot longer than you would have done actually had you gone through the judicial system because you're there until you prove yes. that you shouldn't be. So that yep. that's how long is a piece of string. All right. Well, as much as um, you're correct, I don't know if you've seen last week or the week before, they're due to now let out that guy, I can't think of his name, but he murdered two people inside that facility. Peko Lekovsky? Yes, yep, that's the one. Yes, has murdered two patients Mm -hmm. inside Thomas Embling um, and he's been allowed out on day release to go fishing. I don't know if that's, I'm assuming that's a supervised day day release and it's working towards more freedoms. Then you look at the issue with Sean Price. Sean Price was a violent rapist. Okay, He was put into that facility. He stayed in there for I think it was three or four years or something. They let him out. And then he killed that young lady who was out on a walk. Marsha Vukatic. Again, I'm sure that they help people, not a problem. And I am not. don't mean to completely demonise the place in that, that sense because I understand people do have mental, mental health issues and they need to be helped. However, the problem with, I believe, is with that hospital, and I get it, it's a very difficult process to say how long can they keep people in there. Mm. But where does it work or how does it work? When they do let these people out and like Marsha's family, they turn around and they go, oops, sorry, we got that one wrong. Well, the other issue, I think the potentially the biggest issue with that facility is that, or probably with, with any facility, is the lack of beds. Correct. I mean, it's it's bursting at the seams. That's right. In this situation specifically, Jonathan was actually waiting in a prison for how long? For over a year? Yeah. Um, so he couldn't even get in there because they didn't have a bed for him. That's right. So I think potentially there's pressure to release people. Of course. Because they, there are always more people needing to that's get right. in there, for yeah. one thing. Exactly right. So that's a funding issue. That's right. But, I mean, I again, it's it sounds horrible to bring it back to you to your own situation. No, it doesn't at all. Well, your situation is as bad as it gets and I don't think there's anyone who, who would – think badly of you yeah. because the, there has to be a feeling for you that if he is released, he might come back to you. Well, that's the thing. I mean, I've got somebody and the loss of life for me personally outside of David who, who passed away as well, which did affect me, my concern is is with my own life obviously. So them getting it wrong yeah. means that I potentially get stalked again mm. and if you've lived – a good few years under the type of pressure and stress of having someone stalking you, it creates a lot of issues in every part of your life. I these days have to take four different types of medication. And these these aren't all conscious. The problem with me is it's it's I've got all those triggers from day-to-day life 
and that's from opening doors to I scold myself if I walk out of a door and I don't look each way. I can't handle if someone's a few metres behind me, I've got to ID them and then I've got to move. Things like that won't go away and I look at it and I think if you allow him back out on the streets again, I get it that he may be better but if you've gotten it wrong, which you clearly have in the past, it could cost me my life or somebody else and I think that that's a big risk to take to the community. He's already from the last uh, Zoom meeting we had with the DPP, I was told and made aware that, and it was given to me the news exactly like this, what I'm about to say you're not going to be um, happy with, oh. that yeah, he's already been allowed out on supervised leave with guards. That's, what what are we now, three, four years? So I get to live with all these things and the way victims of crime work, you got, I think it's like five years they'll, you know, help you with certain things. And I mean, I don't get direct help from them outside of like some of the financial reimbursements from some of my psychiatry bills, which are massive. And I look at it and I go, he gets all the help in the world. You know, they medicate him, house him. And again, I don't want him punished in a sense of, you know, they could put him up in a mansion and feed him grapes all day for all I care, as long as he's not out on the street where he can, can harm somebody or me again. That's the way I look at it, which is a very selfish way to look at it. But I look at it and I think, well, I just want to live a normal life and we've got someone that's going around and, yes, has mental health issues but has brutally killed somebody and then tried twice to kill somebody else. Mm. And if he uses drugs again, that could potentially trigger him to whether it's stop taking medication or whatever the case. Now, we've got someone that's got a clear history of not taking medication and being a chronic drug user at some point in his life. Mm. That's killed two people and you're still, I think the common sense thing is is that we'll slowly release him back out into the public and hope he doesn't kill anyone. Well, slowly reintegrate him. But again, that's what I'm asking you. Have they given you any impression that that is the plan, that this is about reintegrating Jonathan into back into society with a, with a plan to release him from the hospital? From the research I've done, that's exactly what the hospital is set out for and does because as soon as, as those two doctors agreed, he then became um, a mental health patient. Yeah, absolutely, and not part of the not judicial of the, system or the corrections. criminal system, so there's no... Although I do know that Victoria Police take responsibility for uh, people, not always, but sometimes, who are released from facilities like this for supervision in a similar way to parolees, for example, um, and there are various levels of that supervision. So I know there's that. But, mm. again, you know, I, I just I'm not convinced that there's an imminent threat, but also it's not I'm not threatened. So I 100% understand Correct. where you're coming from. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. And until, like I was saying, hence why I was sort of talking about what it feels like when you're being stalked and to be attacked from behind. If you haven't lived that way, uh, it's a very difficult thing to describe to somebody that every second of your life during that period of time is taken into consideration your steps. And I look at it and I think, well, the the ramifications of him being re-released is I've got to start living that life again. And until you truly get a sense of what that feels like, and I mean, you've probably spoke to other stalk, uh, stalking victims before. It's such a horrible, horrible thing, and it's so hard to live with. But you've just got to do it. And I look at it and I go, I survived 
two attempts on potentially three attempts on my life and because you want him to be better you're going to and again very selfish but you're going to subject me and my family to that type of potential potential behavior and now if it doesn't happen oh that's great i see it even worse than that i have to tell you i see it as because you don't want to spend money on the mental health system yeah on reasonable effective support for people yes i'm sure there are clinicians who who spend their lives wanting to help people get better i get that mm -hmm. who work there but i think overwhelmingly the problem is that there's not the money there's not the budget there's not the the beds there's not the programs there's not the will frankly politically to spend money on supporting and and handling people properly correct yeah. i mean i think there's like 100 beds there yeah. so if there's so, if there are 100 beds full and then he comes in who do they push out the law says that a person that's deemed mentally ill and not responsible for their crimes mm. shouldn't or didn't know what they were doing at the time. Mm. We've got somebody that has, has spent years planning the stalking and murder of someone and, and executed the stalking of um, the murder of somebody. Yeah. And again, question, is that not the same thing? You've got a, a somebody that, that potentially knows or knew exactly what they were doing was mm. wrong. Okay. I know it's a difficult question because I don't think I think and I think the uh, the thinking is he wouldn't have wanted to he wouldn't have had motive had he not been mentally ill that's the thinking that's that's the yeah I agree position. and and the, the, I get their position and the thing is as well as same that same guy that drove his car down Burke Street yeah he was in a paranoid schizophrenic state yeah you could hear it you've probably heard all the audio Dinosaurs. same as what yep. I've mm. I've heard. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now I agree with what where he is right now. All right, one hundred percent of grants. But they went to trial, and then even after hearing all that evidence of him being in psychosis at the time, they still found him criminally liable for what he did. Yet over this side, and you've got a seasoned homicide detective that's written an, an, an extremely long email stating the fact that what the dangers are mm. of this guy. And it just falls on deaf ears. So I just look at it and I go, I can't stand any of the, the processing because from start to finish it's been just terrible. Yeah. So we're left to pick up the pieces and I'm, I'm left in the state that I am now, which is, yeah, I function during the day, right, and I function and I can, I can go about without not, not thinking about it, but I can't at the same time because each time I, I get triggered, which I thought was just going to go away, but I've burnt in my subconscious that much that that's what kept me alive that it doesn't go away. So I look at it and I go, that's the price I've paid to stay alive. During the, the discussions with the DPP, it's like, oh, it's okay, we understand. You don't understand anything at all. You patting me on the back is not going to make me feel better, right? Mm. Now I'm medicated. I don't want to be medicated. For what? Got to put tranquilize me so I can sleep without violent night terrors and things like that. And I can put up with it all, but I look at it and I go, and you're still going to potentially force my family to live like that? I'm like, where's the common sense? It's like as soon as they fall in over that line that they're now a mental patient, then it's okay. Could have killed 50 people. 
It seems to me too that you're not being included, obviously, and, and victims never are. You're not no. being um, even informed as to what's happening, what the likelihood of a release or anything like that. So that seems to me to sort of play into similar feelings as those feelings of not knowing where he is when you're being stalked. Is that fair to say? Yeah, that's correct. No control, not I've, knowing what's I've, going on. That's right. And that's the worst part. I mean, even I, I said to a psychiatrist the other day, if I was able, I don't want to because I, I, you couldn't get me in a room with him ever again. If we're ever around each other, it's going to end real bad, really bad. But the thing is, is I want to speak to him because, I mean, at the end of the day, that person that attacked me, I don't know, I don't know him at all in, a, in that sense. So I only know my friend who was my best man at my wedding, right? So for me, I grapple with the fact that all my nightmares don't come from being killed or anything like that, it comes from me talking to him and then him exploding into some sort of rage. So my brain doesn't recognise the fact that, you know, that was your friend, right? I don't, I don't have issues with, with people. So for me, I can't. it's really difficult to grapple with the fact that I had someone that, yeah, we had a, a little altercation, like a minor, minor argument, and then all of a sudden it's gone on some sort of killing spree and it is just the damage that's left behind and you've got to live with it. And day to day, you know, it, it's made me a worse person in, in some aspects. Like I can drift off when I'm talking to the kids. The kids might be talking to me and I'll just drift off into my own little world. I'll get stuck inside my head. And I don't look at things like in life like that's not fair, but I don't think that is fair. And then to put me back into that spot, I look at it and I just think, even if there's a slight possibility, it sounds horrible, but if there's a slight possibility that he could potentially go out and start using drugs and then end up in the same boat, am I at risk? You can't tell me no, so keep him there. That's as bluntly as I look at it. And and it strikes me that families who have um, the parole issue to deal with after a certain number of years, they know when that's going to come back up. That comes up every three years say and so they it's it's horrible but every three years they have to yeah. get back out there in the media and they have to retell the story and relive it but they know when it's coming yeah you don't know that don't know anything we're not allowed to know anything even even i was told by the homicide detective that even when he's allowed out on day release the police get notified but not of what he has done all those things they just get told that if this person they get sent some kind of message to say that this type of person is out, but not with specifics. So like, they don't even give me a phone call to say, hey, we're just going to test him out down at Northland Shopping Centre or High Point Shopping Centre. Maybe steer clear of that place. Yeah. You know, and talking to a victim in that sense of like what's happened to me and where I'm at is completely different to how, how someone else would feel if you're – imagine if you're a rape victim and you're not like me who potentially – you know, there'd, there'd be a violent altercation if I saw him again. We're talking about someone that's been way worse affected what what I ever will be and they've got to bump into this person down at the shops, mm. like for real. Counselling, um, are you in counselling? Is it specific PTSD counselling? Where are you at with that? Yeah, I hear something funny. I got a letter from the victims of crime asking for an explanation why why from because I stopped seeing a psychologist and it took me no one I actually had to beg because of COVID I couldn't get in to see anyone so I know no, there were no appointments no, anyway. there was nothing yeah. so I didn't see someone for ages and ages and 
the person who I'm seeing now wouldn't see me, refused because it was a crime matter. And they're like, yeah, and he had been called in to give evidence in another case and, and it took him out of practice for like so long because he was constantly in court. So he didn't want to see see me at all. So I had to sign something for him, which is perfectly fine, saying that I will never ask him to come into court with me and things like that. Brilliant. He's helped me heaps, 100%. But as I mentioned to him, I don't want to see him anymore because I feel like I'm just talking about the same old stuff. And I, I don't go in there and start talking about what we're talking about here today. It's more around me trying to get me a night a decent night's sleep and and that's that's where my anger comes from because i look at it and i go well i should have just been able to put it behind me but the problem is is you can't and i thought i thought that it sounds bad but i thought i was mentally strong enough to be able to just you know whatever happened big deal it's done it's over but i've think i've done some damage to myself in a sense of trying to stay alive I'm a different father than, than sometimes than I should be because of this. And it's not that my kids suffer. My kids are, are fantastic and they're, they're, they're amazing and my wife's absolutely unbelievable. But I subject them to things sometimes that, you know, like this, the night terrors and the this and the that and, you know. It doesn't, and my older boys shouldn't have to think someone was plotting to kill dad. For what? For nothing. And I'm like... You know, it's, it's not what I wanted for them. No. I did everything possible to try and make a normal life just for us guys. That's it. Nothing special, just normal. But it's not normal. It's not normal anymore. So, yeah. Thank you to our guest, David Camerata. We should note that the Victorian State Government has recently undertaken an upgrade of the Thomas Embling Hospital, which has seen an extra 80 beds added to the facility. There are now around 200 beds in total. Thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime, recorded at The Hub Australia. We'll be back next week. This has been another Smartfella production in conjunction with the Acast Creator Network. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As promised, I am thrilled to announce that our tickets for Australian True Crime Live are now available. Join me in Sydney, Brisbane and or Melbourne this July. You can come to all three if you want. These tickets are expected to go very quickly, so be sure to secure yours by visiting the link in our podcast bio or you can head over to the Australian True Crime Facebook page. There'll be a nice link there for you. Update for Brisbane Australian True Crime fans. Brisbane is almost fully sold out for our live show. If you've been a listener for any length of time, you'll know how passionate I am about true crime stories from Australia. I'm looking very forward to an incredible evening together with you, sharing these captivating tales. We will have great guests as well, so, you know, we love a Q&A. If you've ever come along to an Australian true crime live gig, you'll know we love a Q&A with our guests. Don't miss out. Book your tickets today, and I'll see you in July for a memorable night out.